Hey, how's it going over there? This is Finny Barberino, your, your pal and your favorite pilot of all time. I'm out here out in the, uh, what are they called? The runway, right? Whatever's. <laughs> Whatever's. <laughs> hey, Washington, this ain't no basketball court, okay? All right? Get off of there. <laughs> you know, this is like, this is for airplanes over here. Airplanes and helicopters and whatever that unidentified flying object over there is, right? So, uh, I think you're going to really enjoy this uh, episode over here. Because we're going to be interviewing uh, John Gillette, okay? And uh, you get to hear him talk about uh, what it's like making movies and writing screenplays and stuff, all right? You know, the whole creation process. And uh, you can bet your bottom dollar that there's definitely going to be something in there about UFOs, all right? I know, I know. It's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. But we we going to do it. We're going to do It's another extremely exciting episode of Inspirato Projecto. like to ask folks like where where the beginnings are and everything so so you wrote aliens we're here with john john gillette and uh no relation to the gillette razors which i'm heard, sure you've heard many times right well i always say that if i was i'd be um, running that place by now you're just downplaying it right hey, i'm, just I'm down- still waiting for them to call me for the gillette commercials you know <laughs> that's right that's right someday they'll come back someday so he's uh he's putting together his movie Alien stoners, stoners, alien zombies and stoners. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How long has this been in uh, cooking? Um, pretty much since I did my last film. So it's been about I did my last film in 2014, 2015. Came out in 2016. Um, so for at least the last two, three years. I've had this brewing. I've had a Facebook page up for alien zombies and stoners for over a year. And um, so now the time is right. What are you imagining is kind of like the aesthetic of it? For, uh, are you thinking more of like the Dark Crystal kind of route? Are you thinking more of uh, 2D animation? What are you, computer animation? What kind of stuff are you thinking? Well, this is actually is going to be shot mockumentary style, like, a, like if it was a paranormal TV show. So. It's from a single camera perspective on a lot of things. Um, it's it's pretty much going to have um, comic book elements to it. There's going to be a visual to it that um, has a... <clears throat> the best I can just say is a, a comic book feel. Um, there's going to be music video elements to it. Do you mean like rotoscoped? Pardon me, rotoscoping? Do you mean it's going to be rotoscoped? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. Yeah. Yeah, sure. That's that's a big part of special effects and everything on what you're doing because we're going to be shooting a lot on green screen. So anytime you're shooting on green screen or just doing any other thing, you'll be rotoscoping on it. I won't be, but we'll have people doing that. Because I was imagining in uh, Lord of the Rings, they rotoscoped. Because you were saying it's kind of like a comic book. I was imagining, is it like that kind of thing where... Oh, what were some of those other movies that brought that to light? 
but there was that Lord of the Rings where they rotoscope goblins and different fight scenes and stuff. So it was actually humans running, but they just went frame after frame and they turned it into a cartoon kind of look. Is it that kind of thing you're thinking no. about? Well, no, it's just, it's for instance like, um, like, like sky replacement and everything like that. Mm. Like if you were in the real world, if you're outside in the evening, um, there's, lighting is crazy. The skies never look like they do on the TV shows. Right. It, it, everything that's... The that's, sun moves, there are shadows. Right. Well, I mean, you'll, you'll notice that everything that's shot in the evening is very well lit, and that's mm. not the way it is in the real world. Well, this, I didn't want to have to deal with a whole lot of lighting issues, and because I wanted a certain look and feel to it, it's going to be shot during the daytime hours, but I'm gonna have um, spooky sky replacements done in there. And so they turn it and make it look like it's shot in the nighttime, which I yeah. think is so brilliant that you can yeah. even do that these yeah. days. Well, you can, like I said, you can get stock, just a stock image of a, of a midnight blue sky with the clouds going across it and the moon looking really cool, and that can be added in, and then, and then you add another layer of like uh, clouds and another layer of like little bit of mist and, um, and then you've got yourself a spooky sky in the background, and of course, with with your characters in the foreground and everything, you're going to have to add in uh, darkness and shadows and other certain things to make it look like it's in there. But the end result is more comic book like to me, and it's it's going to have a get across the tone that I want to get across to, of something eerie or spooky. When I think of like. Tim Burton movies, I'm imagining like a comic booky kind of vibe. Is it? Is the, are you imagining like that kind of vibe? Where? I mean, like surrealistic kind of things. I can imagine there's going to be quite a crazy, well, lot I, of crazy I, characters and stuff in this. Yeah, I, I imagine it when I say comic book. It's because I, we are planning on having a companion comic with it. So the. The goal is to possibly have merchandising with this comic books, video games, even uh, cannabis products down the road. Um, so, but uh, the um, the idea of, of of that comic book vibe, where oh, yeah, yeah, the comic book you know, is it like a caricature? Is that what you mean? Like it's very highly exaggerated? The no, when I when I say comic book, it's just that the way it's going to be. Um, put together in certain sequences is, is going to, because like for instance when you read a comic book things are extensuated in there as far as colors and themes and and like I said when just down to basic stuff like the sky replacement is going to look very stylized and there's going to be um, there's going to be breaks within the movie to where um, like it's kind of like a cliffhanger moment and it's going to go to like a uh, uh, some sort of either insert or I have an, another thing that can be done there but the, when the cliffhanger stops it's like you'll see the character and then it'll freeze and then they're going to turn it's going to take that, that picture that freezes and turn it into a comic like a drawing version and then go to um, like a commercial type thing because this is going to be like I said presented as, as if it's a paranormal TV show that somebody's mm. watching so there could be commercial breaks in it. I'm, um, I'm more than likely, instead of commercial breaks, I'm going to, um, you remember the, um, 
you know the Muppets, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We remember the the two old guys in the balcony that comment on stuff. Oh yeah, I was gonna have try and have two stoner puppets that would comment on things. So after each little cliffhanger thing where it would stop, the two little puppets would comment. Like they're kind of critiquing on what they just yeah, saw. Yeah, yeah. So or like that, adding that, some kind of that's great. Yeah. So that that was kind of a thought there. It's kind of sounds, sounds to me like it's like reflecting the thoughts of the audience itself. Well, what I what I wanted to do was make something that that has a that has a flow to it and have it all be within the horror theme, but have a lot of different components that every ten minutes somebody's um, seeing something that's weird because I I'm definitely trying to build a brand here. And um, so it, it, it just depends on, um, you know, the resources that I, I have on how much grander it can get, so to speak. Now, um, with Sky Captain and, and, uh, and the World Tomorrow, I think it was, uh, from what I understand, he had shot sort of a demo or something in his living room with the green screen. And, and the magic that he did with that... Maybe I'm inventing this, but I thought I heard the story. Then he ends up showing that, and that was the thing that got people interested in going, ooh, let's let's get behind this and, and put this out there. You were, you were just talking about green screens. What are some of the um, tactics that you're using, and or where would you be filming uh, this movie? Well, the green screen shots are going to be done in my place here. I'm going to set up a huge green screen, and I've... <clears throat> have a cinematographer who knows about lighting and all that stuff and I'll be shooting that here and then I'll be shooting uh, most of the stuff back in Iowa in the summertime. So. What's exciting about this is that when I shot Max Neptune a lot of that stuff was green screen and we have a if you go if you look on YouTube there's this it, it's if you just put in Max Neptune VFX you can see the shots that we got afterwards in the movie, and then the ones, what it looked like beforehand with all the green. And there's this part where uh, I'm laying on my stomach and I'm holding onto this steel cable. And they and it's kind of like a, uh, they put me on kind of like a human la Lazy Susan. And so my, my belly's on this green Lazy Susan thing, and the camera comes at me, and then the Lazy Susan slowly spins so as the camera pulls back it looks like I have just turned around and gone in the other direction I'm wearing a jetpack on my back so it looks like the, the it looks like it just went like I just went whoosh and flew right past you so it's so funny because you see within that oh my gosh we shot in a garage you know like yeah how crazy was that like after all that's done you never even realize this and uh, there's this shot where People are standing in front in front of the garage outside, and you could see in the shot his dad is there, just standing right off screen of the green screen, and they're like, "Oh, pointing at the sky." There's a huge, you know, robot squid. Um, so it's just really cool that no matter where you're shooting stuff, you can put stuff together and Frankenstein anything together. It doesn't matter if you're in a house, in a garage, if you're in a whole another state. I'll be Frankensteining the hell out of this thing. Like I said, I'm I'm gonna be like filming on green screen, like. Different, different zombies, different things like that because, you know, I'm not going to be able to have 50 people to, to shoot this and have makeup for all of them and everything like that. So, but with the modern technology now, man, you can have them all added in later. Well, 
you know, I mean, with that stuff too. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the. Uh, it's called Witch Doctor by a band. Uh, it's called Destat, and it's crazy. There are all of these clones of all of these people in there, and they could totally do that. If you need zombies, okay, cool. Let's clone the same person. Just make them do a few, few zombie faces and stuff, and all right, okay, like a paintbrush. Now you got a whole army of these crazy like. These zombies moving along. That's exactly what we'll be doing. Yeah, yeah. And I'll be one of the zombies, just putting on another shirt, putting on a hat, different scar, doing something different. And they'll just so it'll be fun. It's gonna be nerve-wracking and fun, but you know. How long did it take for you to uh, to write the screenplay? I didn't even, <clears throat> I was, I wrote the screenplay as always as something that I was going to shoot, not as something I was going to sell, which I, that's a different style of writing for me because most, most of the stuff I write is for stuff that I'm going to sell. When it's something that I'm going to shoot, I write it a little bit looser because the script, the way it is now, um, is, I'd say about half of it's not going to be shot like the way it is in the script. Over the over the time period, I've um, you know just you reevaluate things. You you find better ideas, and you see certain things that will need to be cut to make the flow go better. And then there's also um, certain budget things, and you find out that you know what you don't need that bit, as much of a cast as what you thought you did on certain things. And so there's always things that that get massaged to the point to where. It's like a puzzle pieces that you're put, putting together and finally, okay, I see it. And now it's, <clears throat> it's now finally got to the point it's gelling in my mind like I pretty much know how, what I can try and do with it. I filmed before this, um, The Light. How long did it take for you to shoot that? You shot that out in the country. I shot that in Michigan and we shot that whole film over a three-day weekend. I, I had my shot list down to a T, so I was meticulous, so there was, there was no downtime, it was boom, 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 we knew exactly where we were going with everything, and the fact that it was shot found footage style, you know, which once again, single camera, you know, made it a, a quicker and much easier shoot. Um... How many actors were you able to, and or crew, were you able to kind of corral together for that? That's one of those things to where you hear a lot of times for low-budget productions. Everybody did like three different jobs. Everybody wore like three hats. So pretty much every, all of the actors in, in it were crew. You know, when they were in the scene, they were crew. <laughs> so at that party, what, either A, you must have had a big crew, or B, you must have been able to do some of that movie magic that you see with with uh, with uh, uh, stand-ins, you know, extras and whatnot. They must have just threw on different hats or clothes or whatnot. So, like, if you see people from the back no, or whatever, do no, they do anything? No, that? not in those. There was there was enough people at the um, at the party scene uh, to where I didn't have to recycle them. It looks whatever. like there was a lot of people there. No, there was a lot of people there. Um, we just uh, thankfully had a lot of people show up, you know. So there was there was 
just enough to make it look the way I wanted it to look because the whole idea, at least in that scene, was that it was way in the middle of the woods and there should be no reason a bunch of people there are partying. I love the fact too is that you could get away with people looking at the camera and it's no big whoop because it's from the it's from the point of view of a guy who's walking through with a camera uh, coming upon this new party here's this thing and they're all looking at him so it just worked out perfect it's just awesome so you um, so okay so we because we shot a version of that as well there's also that version that exists and um, how long did we how long did it take for us to shoot that because that was on the weekends too wasn't it yeah, we did that over a few weekends. That was over the few weekends. And uh, I thought you were able to st stitch that together really well and give, you know, fit it together with the, the, the woods footage mixed with the the footage that was there um, during the camp, you know, the camping scenes walking around. We worked the, the same way, just, just had everything lined out, you know, exactly what had to be done. And like I said, thankfully, everybody on the thing, you know, did a good job. I mean, that's that's the one thing about, I will say, because, you know, the, the, the thing I did with you was a good, um, was a good prelude to, to do in the second film. It was a very learning experience, but I will tell you that <laughs> I got far much better actors with you guys far much better actors with you guys. I think it's just that, in the end, uh, really the, the look of Michigan was a lot better looking than the look of California, you know, for what I wanted to do and stuff like that, so. Well, you could, um, it would be interesting to see what, then what would happen if you released, you know, because like directors will do that, they'll do a remake of their film People would never expect that. So it could look like this. If you release the one we did, it'll look like it's a remake of the first one. That would well, be that, kind of interesting to see how that Well, I will tell you, in, in the back of my mind, the goal would be would be that alien zombies and stoners would get some sort of a cult classic to allow other things to happen for me, and then people would want to check out my beginning work, because most people don't know that Peter Jackson started off the same way. His first movie was... Uh, was it Bad Brains or something like that? But it took him six years to make. Six years. And then his second movie was Dead Alive, and that was one of my favorite comedy horror movies. Zombies, right? Yeah. I, I just remember someone, I've never seen it, but I heard of, there's a scene where they have a little uh, freaking lawnmower, and they're walking through a bunch of zombies and just like splashing them all over the place. It's awesome. That, it was a great movie, and then the next thing after for Peter Jackson was he got a bigger movie called The Frighteners, because they came to New Zealand to film with Michael Jack, yeah, Michael uh, J. Fox. Oh, Michael J. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, but, but Peter Jackson, one of the biggest directors of all time, started off making the most low-budget horror things, and so... Well, and that's the thing. Everybody has their, their, their process that they go through. You know, they go through... Because, man, you know, the funny thing is, Jimi Hendrix was not born with a guitar in his hand when he came out of the womb. You know, he... He worked up to that, and it's it's awesome to be able to show this process of what people go through because those who listen to this are going through a similar process, and it makes them feel good. Like, okay, it doesn't have to come out perfect. No matter what, we're always good. ideally we hope that we'll evolve into other things. If we stay the same, you know, you're not evolving. So, no matter what, we're always going to be evolving, and we're always going to go. Well, I could have done better on that. Well, that's all we knew at that time when we first did that thing. So. It's, uh, but you're right, that'll be great when people start looking back at your other stuff and 
that's the hope anyway. It's just, I, I will say that um, the movies, you know, got me some good exposure. I actually got a very good review on IMDb from it. That somebody who reviewed it on there gave it 7 out of 10 stars. And I remember him saying that, you know, in it, that he was, the things that he liked about it was the fact that I didn't follow the same path everybody else did with found footage films. And that <coughs> the cool thing was, is that he said that um, he's going to get a lot of flack for giving it 7 out of 10 stars when, when so many other, like, cult classics or blockbuster movies have gotten less. And he goes, well, he goes, because this one is better. He goes, this one was more entertaining. That's great. And I mean, yeah, that it is nice to know that that there's somebody out there that really, really got it and yeah. liked it. Yeah. And they just so happened to be a reviewer. Yeah. And they so, decided to give their opinion. I thought that was that's really and, cool. And I mean, the thing is, is that you know, you know, you get good and you get, you know, bad. Uh, comments here but I mean even the biggest blockbusters have people call it pieces of crap but I mean I've got a movie on YouTube and most most all the comments are actually very very good about it being funny and campy and cult classic like and porn level acting and <laughs> if everybody liked it there would be no edge to it there'd be no perspective to it it'd be just bleh. You know, well, just... it's, it's one of those things when I was going to do a found footage film, originally, I was going to do it like everybody else did, which was like Blair Witch, you know, like it was serious. But, you know, what? the thing is, so many of those movies came out, and I just didn't, I just didn't want to be the exact same. So I thought, you know what, why don't we do it with some comedy, you know, to where um, people are actually interested in the characters and what's going on before the scary stuff happens, because... Quite honestly, to me and most people I know, when it comes to Blair Witch or Paranormal Activity, most people were bored with it until the scary stuff mm. And that's what I wanted to do, is entertain people into it. And, you know, and I guess that's part of the brand I'm building is, even as a writer, the edgier comedy seems to be my forte. Now you got quite a few screenplays I remember you discussing with me over the years. You don't have to go into details of them, but how many would you say that you have? Just hire. like just edit for anything. I mean, you could divide them up, but I mean, just for a well, it's time. because in I've I've written like three or four screenplays for hire before. So, um, uh, but uh, let's just see. Twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven, maybe. Um, just I, I have to think of them all, but I know at least around at least around with everybody that I've written for and myself, twenty-five. Which is remarkable because a lot of folks still haven't even written their first. You know, the fact that you've just gone 25 screenplays in it. The first step is the hardest. I can remember back in the day when um, I had an idea for my, my first script I wanted to do and I've never written a script and I knew I had to write a treatment for it. And I didn't even know how to write a treatment. I had an actor friend that was living with me that knew how to write a treatment. And I'm like, he's, he told me he helped me write the treatment. So. And it kept, he kept procrastinating, and I'm like, help me, because, you know, I didn't know what a fucking treatment was. And so it's like, he, he, he fucking moved away, and so I'm like, I had to learn on There's my own. There's a big own. question mark in your brain, and what the hell is the treatment well, you all You know time? what, it was a learning experience. I had to learn on my own, I had to learn to write my own treatment, and uh, my first script, I wrote it 
handwritten and everything. I had to learn the the structure of how to write a script and then I hand wrote it and I gave it to a friend's wife and paid her like a hundred bucks to to um, you know transpose it for me and do it on the uh, it back at that time it was on the typewriter I think or word processor back in the 90s. What did you uh, come to the conclusion of a treatment? What are the ingredients of that? Well a treatment is it's basically a, uh, a breakdown of what the whole story is. You have a beginning, a middle, and an end. I mean, even as, even in a synopsis, you do, but a treatment is more detailed where um, treatments can be anywhere from a couple pages to, I've heard of 30-page treatments, you know, and, th and that's been by huge writers turning it into studios, 30-page treatments, but... Um, but generally, the treatments, if you have a 30-page treatment, it's because you haven't written the script yet. Mm. So you got to be very detailed about certain twists and scenes. And I mean, so the treatment is usually written after you already have the screenplay. You're kind of, in a sense, giving them a synopsis? Or? No, no. Well, the deal is, is that for any screenplay that you write, more than likely, if you are going to try to sell it or get it optioned or anything, you'll, you're going to always have to have a synopsis because people don't have time to read scripts they'll want to read the synopsis that's generally one to two pages beginning middle end of the story um at the bait on the hook yeah right you're like oh i like that i need to know more right. now right and actually the synopsis thing is a lot of times there you could have a producer that's like okay well let me see your i want to know more about it but let me see your treatment on it and that's kind of crappy. He should just ask for the script after that point. But there are some people that ask more for the treatment. But um, generally, I see that it's uh, more than likely a synopsis they're asking for. Because most people, you know, after reading one or two pages of what's going on, will know whether they want to read the script or not. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they just really like that concept and they just go, yeah, let me see what that's all about. I need there's to... Been, well, there's been films that have just been sold out there on the title alone. Uh, one of the famous ones I heard about was called Sharknado. Not Sharknado, um, Jurassic Shark. Yeah, it was Jurassic Shark. And that's why I, I believe uh, a lot of my scripts that I've written in the last couple of years, it's been all about the titles for me. I like, you know what, when you have a title, that tells you exactly what the movie's about, that is gold, that producers, people love that. And that's why you say alien zombies and stoners, anybody, anytime I tell somebody that, they, they chuckle and they laugh. You know exactly. And that could go in go so on. many directions, but you, you know what kind of ingredients are most likely going to be involved with it. Yes, you know exactly. You just don't know what the heck, right. where it might go. Right, yeah. right. And uh, the last few scripts I've written, like, like a producer um, option for me was Designated Driver. Got a, um, a one that I, I hope will, will get picked up here soon called my uh, my ex's wedding. And um, so anyway, I like I like making titles where, where you know kind of exactly what you're getting into. What are uh, okay? So what are what's one genre? Like for instance, these two uh, that you just uh, recommended. What genre are those? Uh, comedies, edgy comedies. Yeah. So I mean, if you were like. You know, when you think about like movies like um, uh, something about Mary, the Hank like Wachowski brothers, kind of. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, something about Mary the not Wachowski brothers. They did uh, Matrix. Oh no, no, I'm thinking of uh, not Fair Cohen brothers. Fairly brothers. Fairly. Yeah, Fair a lot of brothers going yes. around. Yes, the fa- I would probably say my scripts have a Fairly Brothers tone to them. You know, goofy stuff in there, um, classic jokes, setting it up, a payoff later, uh, bathroom humor, physical humor. I'm a fan of all of it, but I, I try to put things in there that are what I call familiar but fresh. And I do that with music too. Familiar but fresh is that, is that it's it's familiar to people, but you do it in such a way to where it's fresh, you know? I've always been looking for a way to figure out how to do like a, a who's on first type thing in a fresh way, you know? I'm still looking for that one. It could be a musical yeah. version of that, you well, know, you with know, your music, because well, you got you know, so much music. Did you ever see, um, Rush Hour 2, they did a thing like that when they were at this uh, martial arts studio. The guy's name was you, and the other guy's name was me. Are you you? No, I'm me, me, or, or something like that. And they, those type of things. So that's what I'm saying is like a who's on first type thing. Those, I've still been trying to figure out uh, in a more original way on doing something like that, because that yeah. would be great to do. Oh yeah, it's so funny. I was just thinking about that one the other day, because my buddy was telling me to watch this movie. Uh, about Lauren Hardy. I guess there's this really kick-ass movie. And uh, oh, so I heard it was. Cause I remember seeing the trailer. I'm like, it was just. A, it was so curious to me. I didn't know, you know, it already came out or something. So it's cool to hear that that thing's out. Did you end up seeing that? No, saw the trailer though. Um, now what what other kind of uh, genres do you like to explore in? Well, I mean, as a, as a writer, the only. Other ones I really dabble in is science fiction. Comedy and science fiction seem to be as a writer what I do. Um, the horror thing, I'll be up front with you, that it's kind of funny that as a as a viewer, horror generally is my the genre I like the least. I generally like sci-fi's then comedies and then you know horror is kind of down the list. But as a filmmaker. When you're trying to get things done on a low budget, man, there's, there's nothing else like horror. You know, horror is the number one genre around the world, and um, and that's just the, one of the easier ways to to get something done. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, it's it's interesting how popular the idea of extreme despair, anguish, fear, pain, etc, etc, so forth, down the negativity rabbit hole we go, you attach all that to a horror film, it's interesting how, how many how many are attracted to that kind of doom, doom, doom. It's really intriguing because it's, I, I don't really watch horror films, but it's so funny because I worked on uh, Bloody Bobby and Black Pumpkin, these are horror films, and so it's much easier to see guts being made in front of you than it is to actually see it up on a screen, <laughs> happening on a screen, you know, so we get stabbed in the guts, it's like, oh man, I can't, I can't handle that. Um, so with the, um, with the science fiction stuff, what kind of uh, led you into the direction of creating science fictions? You've, you've had a few, would you like to talk about your UFO uh, photographs? Which sure, it, it, is so exciting to me. Yeah, if you want to. Yeah. Yeah, what do you want to know? So, well, you're, okay, so 
at what point did you realize when did you first because you told me very soon to when you realized that there were a series of photographs where if you look closer you always saw a little ufo little 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 thing up there in the sky about a few years ago me and my girlfriend we like to go to the beach every week and i'd take pictures of her at the beach and one time i noticed that um in one of the pictures there was a classic ufo up there in the sky I'm like, what? No way. So I'm zooming in on it, zooming in on it. I'm like, wow. I'm like, well, the thing wasn't there when I took the picture. But, you know, our eyes don't see the same spectrums of lights that a camera does. So um, UFOs can exist or whatever they are can exist in different spectrums of light. So it started making me think like, well, this wasn't in my um, pictures you know, when I, when I, I mean, it wasn't there when I took the picture, but it was there afterwards. And so it just, something clicked inside and it just made me start looking through my photo albums. And the weird thing is, is I found like pictures when I was a kid, like paper pictures that had a UFO up there, you know, and I've had it, um, zoomed in and I had other people into that look at it and do some sort of things with this, not a spectrograph. I mean, they're able to look at it, like invert something and to where you can kind of see the shape of it. And, um, cause in the picture it's, it's a blurry of course, but where it's at, uh, where you see it in the position above a tree or whatever, it's always the size of a car or something like that. And when you, when you, uh, do certain things with it, you can kind of see the shape of it. And it's kind of a classic UFO saucer type shape. So, and the weird thing is these are, pictures I've had for years and I've looked at on and off and it's just you you never just never see it before because it's not within your reality I guess at that time but what got really weird was that so after that I started looking it all over and I started finding a few more pictures that had things in it that was like wow and the weirdest one was I um, found this it was a digital picture from a picture I took of my uncle's farm about 10 years ago and I went out and there's this picture of a barn field behind it because it's flat there and about a uh, half a mile to a mile behind the barn is a tree line and so I took a picture of the barn and so anyway I'm, I'm looking at that picture because I'm looking at all the sky pictures that I have and I'm not seeing anything in the sky in this picture but something compels me to keep zooming in on the picture and so I keep zooming in and zooming in until I'm at that tree line that's a mile behind the barn when I get in that far, you can see a big round object floating above the trees, and it's got a shadow on it. It's not a water tower or anything, because there's nothing that close like that there. Um, and you would never see that unless you zoomed in on it. And something compelled me to do it. Have you had any dreams or any uh, close encounters that you know of with any of uh, any extraterrestrials? No, not that I know of. But the thing is, is that my um. My friend Tracy Torme, who is a um, ufologist and has conducted many interviews with um, abductees, he tells me that for, for my points of contact, all the pictures that I've taken, things that I have seen, because I have seen some things in the sky that are not conventional aircraft um, and other stuff, he says that I'm one of the few people he's met with quite a few points of what he calls contact. He calls pictures contact. You know, 
Um, but, you know, the strange thing to me is, is that I believe that probably most of the UFOs that people have seen have been our own technology. Um, for me, though, the weird thing is, is that if they've been showing up in my pictures as a kid, it would be weirder to me if it was the government than aliens. Because why would the government UFOs or whatever be showing up to, you know, photobomb me? That would seem actually, that's, it may sound weird, but that would actually sound more disturbing to me than aliens doing it. Yeah, I could see aliens wanting to do it, but why the government? That's a good question. Remember we went to a, uh, I talked about Dr. Roger Lear, right? That's right, I've met Roger Lear a couple times. We, I, I met him with you and we went to uh, a secret, I love it, I love it. It's exactly something I would hope to be a part of, is a secret UFO meeting I in Marina Del Rey. That. You took I there took about that. three or four yeah. times. Oh, I loved it, I loved it each and every single time meeting that's the bad, people. That's how bad my brain The people is. in the industry, oh, I loved it. Now, Roger <laughs> Lear, what are some of the things that you can remember that really stuck out to you concerning Roger Lear, because I try to tell the at-home viewers about this stuff, but I think I'd love for them to hear your perspective. Roger Lear was a doctor who, um, I think he was actually a podiatrist, is what he was. He worked on the feet or something like that, but he got well known for um, for basically taking what, what, what people might consider alien implants out. Foreign objects in the body that um, should not be there, that had... Um, foreign matter that was weird he's um he's actually performed um, operations to where when he came close to the object the object would try to move away um, so yeah Roger Lear is no longer with us now but he was um, he, he played his part in, in knowing something's going on I remember him saying it was the smoking gun. He goes, the, his, the implants he finds is the smoking gun of the existence of aliens. Because in each of these things, there would be a certain electrical, you know, impulse. But then once they removed it, it turned off, you know. Right. My opinion would be is that, yes, it's very advanced, but it doesn't have to be aliens. No, it could be ours. You know, <clears throat> my whole thing is that there was... I'm very up in ancient history and weird things that have gone and, and, and the one thing we know for sure is that there was somebody different, very advanced here in the past, you know. Those paintings with UFOs. Well, exactly, all this stuff. That doesn't mean it has to be aliens at all. For all we know, we could have had uh, a very advanced race, more advanced than we are now. There's, there was, it's been proven now, there was a cataclysm 12,000 years ago with the, with the, an asteroid hit. Um, there was a rise in sea levels. All that, that type of thing could have totally reset everything, you know. And, um, you know, it would if you could just imagine now, imagine with the technology we got now. Let's just say that, God forbid, there was a nuclear war or something, but all the governments in the world with all of their technology had to go underground, underground for years because of radiation or something bad going. And they couldn't come out for like maybe a decade or two, maybe three decades. Well, imagine if you come out a few decades later, there's going to be pockets of survivors. 
they're probably not, with everything going on, they're not going to have the same history. And you see a, a certain type of thing flying over you. You may think it's from somewhere else. You may not know what it's about. So it's within the realms of possibilities that we could have had this advanced race that's been here the whole time. And that what people saw in the past was them. And they referred to them as gods because they could have pretended, pretended to be gods, not let them know the real story or whatever. We don't know. Um, and what I'm getting at now is, is like, for instance, that was about that there could be something advanced here. I'm not saying it has to be aliens. Could have been advanced and people just think it could be aliens. Um, but now we've, since Tesla's technology from over 100 years ago, Tesla made an anti-gravity um, UFO. And I'll tell you what, with everybody that was funding his stuff in the beginning, you can't tell me that somebody wasn't going to fund that. And so for me, it's a very good possibility that all the Foo Fighters during World War II and all these other things could have possibly been tech, Tesla technology. And that the, uh, the Germans got a hold of the Tesla technology. And at the very end of the war, they were very close on making their own UFO. And um, then all of a sudden, you know, they couldn't get it done in time. They lost the war. Well, what happened with Operation Paperclip? We got Warner Von Braun, their main guy. And he's the guy that was the head of NASA. We got all of their scientists, Operation Paperclip. So, our, and that was the way it is for the CIA when it got. So our, our CIA was started by Nazis, and our NASA space program was started by Nazis. And uh, they were all Freemasons and stuff like that. But anyway, what I'm getting at was that, you know, it was just within two, two or so years after the war ended that all these UFO sightings that Kenneth Starr saw, the, the flying saucers, which he called them, like, I think that's where the flying saucers thing started. Bob Lazar, too, huh? Well, Bob Lazar is more current. He was in the 70s. But I'm talking back in the day. Um, that's that's what you had. This with, was kind of started. Oh, then you had... Um, who was the name of that guy who would take photos up in the sky? Maybe you just mentioned his name, but I can't remember his name. But he would... It, it was that interesting kind of UFO shape where it almost looked like a king crown. You know that photo? Oh, it almost looks like a bolt off a car. Some, and it's just... It was always out there in the, in the field. You're really good photos, right? Like really detailed well, photos. Yeah, I thought some of it was uh, film too. I want to say some of it was film. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're talking. You're talking Billy Meyer. Mm. Billy Meyer was a contactee. Um, you've got a huge percentage of people out there that think he's the Messiah. I think Billy Meyer might have died now, um, and you've got a huge percentage that say he's a hoaxer. Um, I think it's. Uh, I would probably think that. It, possibly be a little of both because I believe that he truly was a contactee. There's been enough details analyzed on his photographs. His photographs and videos, even back in the day, were analyzed to be real and not fake. The thing is, there's been a lot of disinformation to go against him, like his ex-wife would, would say, oh no, he was a faker, but she had a lot to gain from it. And fact that he he actually did make some models of some things it, it's it's one of those one things to where I think there's a good possibility where like you know you have real experiences and you're getting famous for it and notoriety but those experiences aren't happening so <clears throat> maybe you make some things happen to have tell make people think they're still happening oh. I, I, I think that could have been a little bit of the case I don't no, but I will say that he made predictions that came true later. That's the number one thing why I think there's something to it. 
Uh, wow. So what do you know about Injured Cold? Uh, refresh my memory that again. A uh, guy named uh, w- Woodrow Derenberger was visited while he was driving out there uh, in farm country, and he was, and all of a sudden this UFO landed, and this guy just pops out of the thing. He walks over to the door, to the door, and he's smiling. And he, he tells tells the farmer to roll down his window, and he's basically teleporting through his mind, saying, "You know, I'm injured, cold. What's your name?" They had this little short discussion, and the guy's, uh, and he asks him, "You know, what's that over there?" He goes, "Oh, that's my home and all this stuff." Injured, cold goes, "I will see you again." So he gets into his UFO and goes, and goes off. And uh, so this guy finally came out and gave an, uh, an interview about this whole experience. And uh, it turns out that after he gave that interview, Injured Cold came back and kept visiting him over and over and over again. He would come back to his farm house and uh, people would hide out in the bushes and wait for Injured Cold to show up. And there are reports of, of uh, this guy coming out of it. You know, so it, it's really interesting. I, I do remember this story now. Yeah, I, I will tell you that um, if you talk to a couple ufologists and if you saw the last season of The X-Files, I truly do believe the powers that be put a lot of truth in certain TV shows. And I do believe The X-Files, to a certain extent, gives us a glimpse behind the curtain. That's what they're telling us in those meetings to keep an eyes out well, on the media. This is what I'm getting at and I was going back to Roswell with it. That oh, yeah. It's within the realms of possibilities to me that I just don't think that, that aliens just can be that advanced and just crash their ships and shit like that. I think that there's a chance that this could have happened either a on purpose or by accident because you know they test craft anytime these things crash it's it's quicker to say it's an alien thing because people won't believe it you don't want it to be test craft because you can't let these people know the technology that you've got right now so it's within the realms of possibilities that think about hollywood you're 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 an actor you think you see tv shows all you got to do is is basically uh have the technology because the government i mean people from the military have come forward and said we're 50 to 100 years of what people think we are you know so and so imagine this that 30 years ago 40 years ago that we had our own ufos since the 40s and it's only gotten better and stuff like that imagine that with with the technology you have with hollywood type stuff behind you you could go to somebody with one of those have a hollywood type alien thing to them you know hit them with some sort of electromagnetic weapon that jumbles their brain a little bit and they're going to believe that they're seeing an alien with the spaceship you know you pump them full of drugs you know um, put them on a spaceship a lot of these abductees i mean i don't know for sure but it could actually be secret government things pretending to be aliens and, and doing this to people with with the advanced technology they have that's within the realms of possibilities also. Um, and I think that, you know, certain aspects of it, you know, I think that that, that could be happening for whatever reason. I, I have no idea. I mean, I've, I've read so many different theories, you know, that the U.S. and I mean, the governments of the world and certain alien races have 
things going on together where they do this or that. I would probably say that, you know, 90% of what you hear out there or what's on the internet is disinformation meant to lead you away from things, you know. That's what it would be if, if for instance, if, if the U.S. government had secret te- UFO technology, they would rather you think it be a UFO than their own thing, you know, because UFOs are easy to debunk. Mm. And, you know, it's, oh, it was the swamp gas. It was the lights reflecting off that thing. It was, you know. Have you seen the documentary Hellier? It's free. It's on YouTube. Have you seen that yet? By the Kentucky Goblins. One day, so there's this team, this husband and wife team, who go out and they do paranormal studies. And the name of their their thing is called Weird Planet. Have you heard about this? Planet, planet weird or something. So they go around, they do all these cryptozoology type things. <coughs> you know, they'll look for Sasquatch, paranormal <coughs> stuff. So like in 2012, they got an email from someone saying that they moved to this place called Hellier, Kentucky. And they were living there for a short time. And all of a sudden, these gremlins, these goblins, would start terrorizing the house and his family and everything, you know, trying to get in. He said they were like gremlins or something. And he said that they lived in the mine shafts, they lived in the caves. So, so the the husband and wife are like, yeah, you've got to send us some kind of proof, you know, if you want us to go out there. Because he thought they were a paranormal team, like, will you get rid of these things? And they're like, well, we just kind of investigate stuff, we don't, we don't know how to get rid of something. So. They're like, just send us something. So he sends him back these pictures of these three finger, these three like toed little feet prints running through the mud. And they're like, holy cow. And then they didn't hear anything from him for a while. And uh, then he came back a few months later and he goes, I had to move. It was getting so bad out there, I had to move. And uh, he goes, but now they followed me again. He goes, I'll try to take photos. So then he emails back to them like these really shady, you know, kind of very blurry photos, but there's one that kind of shows like sort of a corner of a head and the side of it, and that they don't hear anything from him again. So they decide to go out and they investigate this in Kentucky, uh, Hellier. So they they arrive at this gas station, they're asking around, they show a picture, they're like, hey, have you seen anything like this? They start getting all these stories from the people saying, oh yeah, we've seen something like that, oh yeah, we have, we've, we've seen a lot of that. So they start hearing, holy cow, this is like a commonality in this town, apparently. So you get into this idea that like out in this country area, these people have these stories that they want to talk about. And for whatever reason, one would think that someone would have evidence of some of this stuff. Who knows? Maybe they move faster. They're a faster vibration or whatever. But, you know, maybe they have to go zip right out of the way, right, when you take the photo. <laughs> so, um, but they just found, you think you go down this rabbit hole. It's so awesome. And, it, and so I was thinking about this. What if those aliens were actually the gremlins, the goblins living in the, the, in the mines? They said they found that if you took a, if you paint a line along where these sightings were, you know, Chupacabra, Yeti, Sasquatch, uh, it's all where there are caves and mines. And so someone named Terry Wrist sent them an email 
because they ended up going to this cave. Okay, a friend, a friend of theirs ends up, end up going to a, a psychic and saying, hey, the psychic told me that around this corner, if we go, there's a cave entrance where we could lead to these extraterrestrials living in the center of the earth. So they just decided to go over this particular area. They didn't tell anybody where they were going. They were looking around, they couldn't find any entrances. So they get home, they get an email from a guy named Terry Rist. He goes, why did you stop? You were so close. And he sent them coordinates. It was longitude and latitude, and it was to the exact coordinates that they were at. So like someone was watching them. So there was this outside kind of thing, and it turns out that Terry Rist helped with this whole experiment that was going on with these creatures that were in the center, uh, like in these mine shafts. Anyway, it goes deep, deep. It's such a crazy, interesting story. But when you told me about that, and to go along with your theory, I'm thinking, whoa, okay, so what if those little things, they're teaching those little things to fly the UFOs, to, to fly the UFO technology, right? The things that, could, that they're already experimenting with in the center of the earth, why not? It might be those things. You know, the gremlins or the goblins or what have you. Well, I, I believe that all folk, folklore is based on something. Yeah. <clears throat> Demons, goblins, fairies. Yeah. Although, actually, I've seen some interesting pictures that people have had of fairies that are, I'll just say, pretty interesting. I, and I believe a lot of those things, because you just don't see them all the time, I believe yeah. that they could be um, interdimensional. That would allow them to come and go. Same thing with Bigfoot. Because, you know, a lot of times when people see Bigfoot, he comes and goes. It's not like Bigfoot's a, a fast motherfucker and he just starts jogging. Most people, when they talk about seeing a Bigfoot, they say Bigfoot's like walking. Maybe briskly walking. But they never say that Bigfoot hauled ass out of here. They never say that. They just say that he briskly walks. And it's like, you know, some people might be brave enough to see all these Bigfoot hunters and stuff. And Bigfoot never gets caught. I mean, every animal that's out there will get caught. There is hunters and just uh, just every animal gets caught. Bigfoot, man, you can't even get a good picture of him. And he's inter he's interdimensional. Why. I'm telling you, Bigfoot's well, interdimensional. I also found an extra reason is through Dolores Cannon's through all these different past life regressions that she's taken all these people from all over the world. She asked them about Bigfoot. She would get talking. You know, Bigfoot, they'd get this, this entity talking to them about Big, uh, to her about Bigfoot. And in all these instances, they all said that Bigfoot, um, that the Sasquatch read minds, that they are, what's the word I'm thinking, telepathic. So they can read and they're very, um, and they're empaths. So they can tell whether you're a good person or not, what your intentions are. Dogs can do that too. So like if you, you know, right? And then the dogs that see, see the stuff that we can't see. So I'm thinking with these Sasquatches, you know, they're kind of sussing out the situation and maybe they only half appear to those who they kind of, you know, want to tease us in a way of knowing that there's no way we could actually catch them in time. Who, who knows? They might be mischievous, just like all the other uh, woodland creatures. Well, you, <clears throat> you've got <clears throat> people out there that say that they've, that they've killed Bigfoot or that they've had his thing. I think a lot of that stuff, possibility, because I, I just... If you hear it backed up by enough sources, you know, enough witnesses that say, yes, I saw it, but so-and-so came and took it away, you know, I, I, I do believe that there is certain powers that be that, that get rid of a lot of the evidence of uh, what I call cryptozoology, <laughs> you know, because um, like I said, the legends of Bigfoot and the Sasquatch and the Yeti, I mean, that's been around for centuries. You know, so when stuff's been around for centuries, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, there's something to it. 
And, and, and the fact that it just can't catch one, I'm telling you, they're just, they're interdimensional. Hey everybody, gather around. Want to hear the Inspirado hotline number? Yeah! Alright, goes a little bit like this. Five, six, one, two, zero, three, nine, one, seven, niner. Five, six, one, two, zero, three, nine, one, seven, niner. Say, I got an idea. How about you try it? Sounds great! Okay, here we go. Five, six, one, two, zero, three, nine, one, seven, niner. That sounds great. Five, six, one, two, zero, three, nine, one, seven, niner. That sounds awesome. Five, six, one, two, zero, three, Nine one seven niner. One of my favorite eighty films of uh, video game culture is The Wizard, nineteen eighty nine, directed by Todd Holland, starring Fred Savage, Christian Slater, Jenny Lewis, Bio Bridges, and Luke Edwards. Just at the end of the decade, right as John Hughes's films had kind of become the norm and were waning, this film um, kind of uh, took all the excitement of the Nintendo Entertainment System that swept over America and led us to play video games like Super Mario Brothers or Spy Hunter or 1942. Now, so the plot of the Wizard is really cool. Jimmy Woods is a young boy suffering from PTSD. You know, just because they're big and hairy doesn't mean they're not smart. You know, it just means that where they're from, they don't need clothes. <laughs> so in a sense, they're shape-shifting enough to be able to kind of uh, harmonize with our vibration enough for us just to catch a glimpse of them. And then, in a sense, they vanish back into... Oh, yeah, I think they, they have some like sort of a way to... Hey, here I am. They change, that's right. They change their vibration and they're back to where Ooh. they're at. Will there be any Sasquatch in your movie? That would be cool. That would actually be something for a, uh, a sequel or part of a TV Like after, after the credits roll, you see Sasquatch lumber... Well, in in the scheme of things, the the whole idea behind it is um, it's a paranormal team going to investigate spooky things, just like like remember Scooby Doo? Yeah. How how them in the mystery van they went to involve investigate mysteries. That's the same way that I see my thing. And um, every if you did a TV series on it every week, you could have a different type of spooky thing that you would be going to investigate. There's got to be some kind of grants out there or some kind of funding for these kinds of things. I mean, I'm wondering there's so many collectives around that you could possibly talk to as sponsors or, you know, certain magazines or affiliations. I went that to um, 
What I found is that I was, my original plan is I thought I was going to be shooting this in Colorado because I knew some film people there. And one of the thoughts was, was to go around to all the different dispensaries there and ask them to be sponsors and stuff like that. And um, that's still not out of the question. It's just that in, in, in the work itself, um, I want to... Uh, want to have a certain amount of control over this because it's a passion project although at the same time the thing about getting more money would be um, would be there there it, it depends on how things would go for instance this could be something that I could make and for whatever reason it could that it it could be something to end up in the end being a proof of concept that you could take to somebody and look at this, imagine what it would be if it had a million dollar budget or a hundred thousand dollar budget or anything even bigger than that. The whole the whole trick of this is is to make something <laughs> that people's gonna think cost a lot of money but didn't. And I'm hope that's what I'm hoping this is going to look like in certain instances but at the same time like I said I wanted it to appear like a paranormal TV show which is you know like you're kind of right there um, what kind of cameras are you thinking about shooting with um, uh, high def probably DSLRs uh, more than likely probably a 5D Did you hear about uh, Steven Soderbergh putting out that new TV show? I'm just astonished by this. He's putting out a TV show that's all shot on iPhone. And I investigated it, and the name of the people who put it out are called Moondog Labs, and they use 58-millimeter lenses, Attachment special phone. filters, special attachments yeah, on the you phone. Got to. You got to. I mean, it's incredible, and it's much cheaper than if they were to put it on other cameras. So he, put, he made an entire television show that's going to be on Netflix. So it's awesome. Once that hits, man, my prediction is that you're going to see lots of that out there with people just starting to, I mean, a huge influx of all that stuff where sure. something that would normally cost, you know, I don't know, $20 million to make now, now truly is only But But let's, let's, let's talk about, though, that even though he used an iPhone, he had professional lighting and he had all that stuff that he had to do. Well, yeah, yeah. So just, but just imagine like all the, like the stuff that you're saving money on. You're not renting stuff. You're not paying for, you know, like imagine if you are a cinematographer, you know, I, I guess the cool thing is just the idea that it's showing us more and more that the everyday artist just has Well, well no, absolutely. But it, it's, a, it's all about technology because I will guarantee you that he took that, that iPhone image and he put it into After Effects and he put, um, a lot of, um, uh, sugar and spice on it to make it look like I mean you can I mean I've 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 seen what what you can do with stuff to to make things look 200% better you know so but the, the fact that you could shoot on your iPhone it, the, the whole point behind that is that people shouldn't have excuses on why they just can't shoot anything because if you've got a phone nowadays and with 
cheap software that's out there, editing software and stuff like that. I mean, there's no excuse why you just can't go and shoot something if you just want to shoot something. Yes. I would give the same advice to anybody that I got advice from, from big time directors, and that would be that you shoot, don't wait for the big budgets. You shoot something with what you have right now, with the resources you have right now, what can you do? And they'll say, you know, you know what, my, my uncle's got this really spooky barn and a spooky thing. All right, well, write a script around that one setting and shoot something right there. Yeah. You know, that type of thing. You know, my whole thing with Alien Zombies and Stoners was, um, was that when just the title, the hook, I had that. And it's just like a song. You know, songs for songwriters, when you're writing a song, a lot of times you'll start off with the hook and then you build around that. Well, that's what I did. I, I had the, the hook, Alien Zombies and Stoners. I knew the title was gold and it's just so I had to build something around it. And um, so having a, a hook um, with anything can help, you know. Put something up. So have you already, I can imagine that you've probably already come up with a, a fun theme song for this movie. Um, I'm going to have my own original music in it. Yeah, well, <clears throat> there's going to be um, um, music video elements to it. So I'm, it's going to be more about the music um, setting, setting the tone. It's going to be a, a tad bit more on on the rock side, so to speak, more of a pop rock thing. Uh, the whole overall soundtrack is probably going to have a little bit more of a rock and roll feel to it. Um, but it will, it will be original tunes. I haven't decided exactly on which things are going to happen, but people will hear guitars in it. So one thing's for sure, there's going to be guitars on this soundtrack. Uh, is this going to be something where the, um, you know, sort of like I'm imagining where that, that music actually becomes its own character, kind of like the Quentin Tarantino um, movies, that the soundtrack also becomes its own, its own character that people can collect and get familiar with? Um, in the sense that um, I wanted to convey a certain feeling for the audience. Um, for instance, one of the songs that's in there is um, is a, a very happy song, and it's it's going to have the main characters, you know, in a video. But the song, because it's so happy and poppy, it's designed to make people like the main characters. Because the beginning of the movie, they just came off a scary incident and stuff like that, and now they're getting ready to go on an adventure, and it's going to show them in a a very happy light and it's going to get the audience to to like them so it's it's the type of song that would make people all oh, happy you know bop your head back and forth and make them likable and then one of the other parts there's a there's one where um, one of the characters uh, is having a hallucination and he imagines um, this one girl doing a dance a choreographed dance with some zombies behind her and um, she's dancing to a, a rock and roll tune that just works for the groove of a dance like that. So do you have a, uh, a packet, any of this information together, like the, the you know, the uh, budget or, uh, you know, someone emailed me a, uh, a budget 
template. Mm-hmm. I, I can forward that to you so you can well, always got, get your brain. Well, I've actually got uh, business plan templates and stuff like that. And if, so if you, I was so you have a packet, like if you want to present it to an investor? Well, because <clears throat> I have some ideas. Well, what this is what I found is um, with something like this, because like I said, going to AFM, I talk to these guys and through my producers is when you're dealing with something that's generally under $50,000, most types of people that invest in things don't do that. That's at that level or less, you're looking at private investors or crowdfunding that type of a thing. Okay, so just for kicks, let's right. just, let's just for kicks. We just go, hey, you know what? I'm just gonna say, okay, well, let's. We'd, I'd be open to a hundred thousand dollars, you know, or whatever, to make this thing. Um, like, did you, would you be willing to like if if someone sponsored it? You know, would that help you out? Or, mm-hmm. um, um, like, for instance, do you have a, a packet as to? I, well, let's just put it. Let's just put. Let's just put it to you. I've I've made a I made up a couple things for my um, producer one time where I broke down. I had a budget for it, and I broke down pretty much where all the money for that was going to go. And the thing is, is when you're dealing with this, is that it's one of those things that when they ask you, you know, well, what kind of budget you got? Well, generally, you you don't want to tell them. They're like, well, what do you think we got? You know, they'd say, oh, you're about right. But see, this is the type of concept that, <clears throat> as a filmmaker, you want to figure out, okay, what kind of concept can I do that can be done for cheap? Like my first film, The Light, was found footage. Why? Because found footage, it's permissible to look rough around the edges because found footage is, hey, it's single camera. It's like you're with your friends and then the shit goes down and you're filming it first person right there. You're allowed that, to just be loose with it, and exactly. So, you know, if there's a glitch, you can, you can intend to put those things in there. Absolutely, and so that allows you to uh, tell a story um, in a short amount of time because you're not having multiple camera setups, turnarounds, all these different things. Um, so, in keeping with that, I wanted to kind of go the next level up and not be found footage. But you know what? Paranormal TV shows are very popular out there, and they are also single cameras. You either have a single cameraman or you have like a, a GoPro with that POV on you type of thing. So that's the next step up that could be done. Once again, no no um, multiple camera angles, turnarounds or anything like that. And you do it as a first person type of thing once again. Um, you just take it up to another level. And that's what I thought I would do with this one to once again, do something for a lower budget because um, you, you got to get something made and I, I truly believe that you can make things with like no budget or low budget that basically um, people will really really like because you know there's a whole there's a whole subculture out there that loves um, low budget things. So, so that there's the whole thing for low budget things out there that people love. And, um, you know, this right here, like I said, will hopefully um, end up having a look of something that, you know, is, uh, you know, still far better than um, paranormal activity or, 
uh, uh, some of these other things just because you're going to have interesting characters and you're going to have uh, funny situations and um, you're going to have something that um, hopefully will become a cult classic. And as a filmmaker, I would think that I would hopefully take it someplace to where you can make another one, you know, and that's where things would really happen. You know? Now, because um, there's a, about, it lets me go up to an hour or so, where would be some good places that people can either, you know, read about you or, or see what projects you worked on or see, you know, uh, any of that stuff? Well, if, right now, um, because it's in the very beginning stages of the movie, I've just got the, um, the Facebook webpage, which is, you know, facebook.com slash alien zombies and stoners. All the uh, up-to-date information on the film can be found right there. Um, within the next uh, few months when the movie goes into production, I'm going to be uh, having a website to where I will be able to um, have more uh, fan interaction and um, actually get into selling some really cool swag and merchandise because we're planning on having Alien Zombies and Stoners merchandise also. T-shirts, hats, certain things. Um, Posters. Um, anyway, we're gonna have we'll have some stuff that can be from some free uh, swag and stuff that, of course, we're gonna sell. But anyway, we're gonna be um, promoting it uh, to a point. Um, like I said, it, if we get a sales distributor right away, then it's all gonna be in their hands. What, uh, where can people see the light? How how can they actually find it? What are key, key words? Uh, just go to. YouTube, put in the light and put in found footage. Found footage, horror, um, either of those two keywords will bring it right up. What about your name? Uh, my name is John Gillette. And then how do they, how do you spell that for the folks who are listening? Uh, John, J-O-N, Gillette, G-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. -T -T -E. There you go, folks. Um, check it out. Keep your eyes open. And thank you for listening. Any final words of wisdom? Yeah. Uh, Basically, thoughts become things. So choose your thoughts wisely. Oh, that is good. That is good.